Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast that it's always been, where people tell me five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick anything they want, but they must pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the journalist, writer and broadcaster Samira Ahmed, who regularly presents Front Row on BBC Radio 4 and Newswatch on BBC News and BBC Breakfast. Samira was born in Wandsworth in London and began her career as a reporter on shows such as Today on Radio 4 and Newsnight on BBC Two. She joined Channel 4 News in April 2000 and became a presenter in 2002 until she went freelance in 2011. She's won the Broadcaster of the Year at the Stonewall Awards and has also won Celebrity Mastermind twice, becoming Mastermind Champion of Champions. Samira presented Sunday Morning Live on BBC One and famously revealed the earliest complete concert recording of the Beatles performing live in the UK on a special edition of Front Row on Radio 4. The tape was made by 15-year-old student John Bloomfield at Stowe Boarding School on the 4th of April 1963. Samira has been awarded honorary doctorates by City University of London, the University of East Anglia and Kingston University and is a trustee of the Centre for Women's Justice. So, what five things from her impressive life will Samira Ahmed choose to put in her time capsule? Well, here's your chance to find out. Have fun. So, it's lovely to have you on uh, my time capsule, Samira. Uh, I feel slightly daunted, I have to say, because I spend most evenings sitting, eating my dinner with my wife, listening to Front Row. So I'm well aware of your extraordinary interviewing technique. And now I'm going to obviously demonstrate how not to do it. Well, it depends on the context. I mean, I don't give people a hard time unless they 
need it. No. It's a nice thing. You can grill me as much as you like. And I should say, I love the idea of a times capsule because I'm of that generation where they were always being buried. You know, the Blue Peter time capsule. Yeah, they were doing them for the Qu- Queen Silver Jubilee. They were doing them for in 1980 for the millennium. There was a lot of excitement about the millennium. I never really thought about that. I'd live to see them being dug up. And uh, <laughs> there's nothing that exciting after 20 years, is there? <laughs> no, not really. No, you sort of go, hang on a minute. I've still got those in the cupboard. Yeah, exactly. Certainly the Blue Peter one. Yeah. We've all got the Blue Peter annual from 1967. What are you talking about? Now, normally, you see, I come at these, Samira, from a point of view of, well, ignorance. Let's put it that way. I quite like the idea of not knowing what you're going to choose to put in there. But also, I tend not to look people up because I think that actually the telling of the story will reveal things. But of course, I got I got a bit panicky, so I did look you up. Uh-oh. And the thing that I found the most fascinating is that you went to the same school as Laura Croft. Did she go to Wimbledon High School? Apparently, yeah. Like if you watch the films, that's where she went. Well, more importantly, you know who else went to that same school? Margaret Rutherford, although only briefly. I think her family ran off to go back on the road, <laughs> you know, as, as touring theatricals. But also Jane Seymour, the Bond girl. And what's really interesting was they never used to mention her on the website until quite recently. And I, she's on my wish list, actually, someone I would love to interview. Yeah, what a life she's had. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, when people go from being, in a way, slightly cursed by their looks. Her career was defined by the fact that she was so stunningly beautiful that people sort of didn't notice the other skills going on. Well, I think some of us did. I thought she was amazing. Oh, well, you there know. you are. You see, you yeah. did. I was looking at the wrong thing, but we won't go any further on yeah, that. Yeah, and I think you're talking about men. Men were distracted men. by her looks. But All right, yes, It okay. was a woman's woman, we could tell. <laughs> you do. You do in, in everything, I would say. So um, let's discover then, through our journey through the things you've chosen, things about you, I hope. So uh, what's the first thing you've chosen? Um, so I suspect I'm not the only person to think of this, but Charlie Perfume. Right. Why? Because... Um, so I was explaining this to my daughter the other day. I said, like, in the 70s, mm. people didn't buy genuine designer brand perfumes. You know, we heard of Chanel number no. 5, but no ordinary person, no middle-class person could spend that kind of money. And there were this whole world of very affordable high street perfumes you could buy in boots. And Charlie, I think it was very Revlon. And the thing about it was it was the first feminist perfume. So it was advertised by women in trouser suits sort of striding around Manhattan, just ordinary women, but women who were working, career women, and they were wearing trousers and uh-huh. and they looked quite fresh faced. They weren't they didn't look like they were they were trying to attract men. They just looked like they were having a great life. And of course the name itself is sort of deliberately gender neutral. So it's mm. playing with the idea of, you know, what a, a modern woman is. So um and I just I remember my mother buying me a bottle when I was a kid and I just always associated it with freedom and being a grown up. And what's really sweet is when my daughter grew up, my mother bought it for her too. Oh, how fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> it still exists. It still exists. And it's got, you know, it's probably a little bit um sharp and cheap. But I still think, you know, there's nothing like smell. We all know that smell is the most evocative memory inducer. And Mm. it has, it's still full of optimism and the idea of being a real grown-up. I still fantasise about being a proper grown-up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, of course, uh, at the same time, the opposite was being done to boys in as much as they were having the the wrong image reinforced by having to wear a thing called brute. Oh, yeah, well, there was a variety, wasn't there? There was was allspice. Old, old old spice. Old, old spice. spice, yes. No, that was for dads. And and also Aramis. My dad wore Aramis. Oh, no, right. Yeah, Aramis. That's quite good, isn't it? Oh, and high karate. 
But <laughs> no one only wore that except on I saw an advert. So I think it frightened people. Women, women would women would go mad and, <laughs> and assault you. <laughs> and yet, ironically, they still advertise that body spray that men are supposed to wear. I can't remember what it's called. Lynx. Links, yeah. They still advertise that in the same way as if it will make you alluring. Well, it's aimed at teenage boys. I mean, that's the thing mm. is Lynx is just aimed at teenage boys. Yeah. So they used to pretend they were aimed at grown-up men in the past. I don't know. So it is absolutely the teenage boy's ridiculous fantasy, which is never going to happen, isn't it? Yes. Now, see, but you had an example in your life, didn't you? Your mother was a, an extraordinary independent woman. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've sometimes it takes us a while to realise just how extraordinary our parents' generation were. So my mother was always a wife and would always describe herself as housewife, but was a successful actress and had mm. been a broadcaster, had come to London on a bursary paid for by the Indian government. And she was supposed to train for six months at World Service and then go on to CBC Canadian Broadcasting. But she met my dad in London and she decided ah. to stay. And, you know, this is the amazing things, people, that they travelled across the world. It's 1960, fall in love. They mm. were barely, you know, I mean, my mother been 21 or something. Wow. And they, they, you know, set up a new home. And so she kept, she kept working for the um, BBC. She worked for the Eastern section and did dramas. And then when the Asian Community Unit launched in Pebble Mill, she used mm. to go and read the news every week on Nairs in the Guinea Ajivan, the Sunday morning show, which uh-huh. also did kind of, you know, they'd have performances by visiting artists and musicians. And then she also presented a show called Gharba on Wednesday mornings, which ran from about 1978 to 82-ish. Uh, and it I was like it, a yes. mid-morning chat show. Yeah. And they discussed all kinds of issues, yoga. And there's episodes on YouTube. Um, and she oh, she looks amazing. She still does, you know, in a sari, very natural. You know, they they ad-lib their own scripts and things. Uh, and I went once to a recording and I, I guess you could argue, but I mean, I always, I resent if anyone tries to call me a Nepo baby because having a mother who watched an Asian broadcasting meant nothing mm. to the people who run the BBC when I was joining in the 90s. I joined as a news trainee. No, quite. But what mattered was I saw that people who looked like me can work at the BBC. I saw a camaraderie. I saw professionalism. Most of the studio crew were white and didn't speak the Indian languages. Only the production team, mm-hmm. you know, would have been Asian yes. and the presenters. But, you know, this was in the 1970s, late 1970s, when there was a lot of racism in Britain. And BBC seemed a bit of a oasis of, you know, of, of a happier, more tolerant Britain, which yes. is what I always thought was real, you know? Yeah. And there had been... There were people before you who'd broken that barrier, really. There were, who's the presenter on Newsround? Oh, Lucy Martin, yeah. So That's Lucy right, Martin yeah. was the first Asian female reporter in BBC News, possibly was she anywhere. The first? And she was a reporter right. as well, a news reporter. And then she started doing Newsround Extra. And yes, you know, she and I have got to know each other because I wrote a letter to the programme in 1978. 1978 <laughs> turned out to be a very important year for me. Um, and she got in touch with me 30 years later, remembering that she thought it was my name. She still remembered it. And she now, she retrained as a doctor in her mid-30s, deciding that journalism, she wasn't doing anything positive to change the world. She was in Afghanistan and she thought they believe that journalism is going to help them and it's not. Mm. And then she became a doctor at 36 and now runs a, an eye charity called Second Sight, which cures treatable blindness in Bihar. I mean, just amazing stuff that changes lives. Amazing. Amazing woman. Amazing yes. woman. Well, I'm, I'm sort of surrounded by them. My wife is an amazing woman. But unfortunately, she, at the age of about, I think, probably about 30, decided she was going to train as a doctor. And they said, no, we don't train people over 30 now. They were going through this very strange oh. period where they felt that it was a waste of investment. Strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably the least wasteful because mm. the older you are, the less likely you are to, to relocate to another country. Yes. And one of those things that people at the time were concerned about, she'd already had a family. 
So, in fact, there was going to be no time off for maternity leave. No, exactly. We didn't understand it. But so anyway, she went on and became a, a doctor of biochemistry as well. So sod them. Good. Sod yeah. them, yeah. Yeah, indeed. She showed them. They missed out. That's all yeah. I'm saying. They missed out. Well, I can picture you now as a teenage girl splashing Charlie on delicately behind the ears and striding out into the world in your trouser suit. Yes, I still wear <laughs> trouser suits. <laughs> I've even started wearing corduroy trouser suits again now. They've come back. Yeah, no, they're quite smart. I like them. I have to say, I don't wear Charlie perfume anymore. But no. if, I, if I had a bottle lying around, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind giving it a go. Yeah, I, I can't I, picture the smell. And yet I'm sure that actually... Uh, Almost every girl that I would have fancied at that time would have been wearing it. Because you've only fancied feminists. I know you're a very thoughtful, well, mature young man. When, when you were. <laughs> I, <do> know, <laughs> I think I probably did. I think I probably did. I always like to talk to people. Yeah. I found people more attractive having spoken to them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. All right. So let's put a lovely bottle of Charlie perfume into the time capsule. It's your first thing, Samira. So let's, um, let's see what number two is. Bird's custard powder. <laughs> I grew up eating the most amazing Indian food every day because my mother was a you know cook. She used to have her own cookery show and everything. And mm. so English food was quite exotic to me. And when I started school, um, I had my first experience of school dinners. And I can remember this giant vat of custard uh, going over bananas. I, th- I can actually almost remember my first day at school. And it was Virgo Fidelis Convent School in Upper Norwood. Mm-hmm. And they had an old-fashioned kitchen with a giant, giant pot full of custard, and they ladled it onto sliced banana. So my first dessert, I remember, was bananas and custard. Mm. I just thought, oh, this stuff is amazing. It makes <laughs> bananas like really quite like a hot pudding by putting this stuff on them. Yes. And the thing about Bird's custard powder is it was invented by a man whose wife was allergic to eggs, and she was convalescing, and he needed to give her something that had you know, the milk and the protein, mm. um, but he couldn't use eggs. So it's made of corn flour. And I know people say, oh, it's not real custard, but it just tastes great. You know, it's one of these things where it doesn't matter that it's not real custard. It tastes so good. Yes. So I always have a tub and I love making it. I love the way you mix up the milk. It's quite an old fashioned thing to make. And for me, there's just something really exotic about custard. And so when I grew up, the thing that I learned to cook, because I was never going to be as good a cook as my mother at Indian food, is I mm. make really good desserts. And I make really good things like traditional English puddings, like crumbles, and I make steamed <laughs> jam puddings with custard. Oh, fantastic. It's almost cruel, isn't it? In fact, they're the things in life that you're always told you have to slightly avoid. Yeah, but, but you know, it's the only, there's a snobbery about that. It's like there's a snobbery about Angel Delight, which would have been the alternative that mm-hmm. I would have chosen, which, again, it's... It's a brilliant thing in its own right. And again, it's made with corn flour. Something very comforting about that texture, I think, and the flavorings. So you just embrace the fact that it, you know, it is made with certain amount of chemicals, but essentially it's really just corn flour and a bit of flavoring. And then you add milk. Yes. And then the corn flour thickens the milk. Yeah. And it's a great British technological innovation. It's like the hovercraft. You know, <laughs> it's one of those great things that's come out of this country. You should be proud of it. I am proud of it, and we should be. You're right. But um, see, the problem is it's so simple now, isn't it? You come to Sunday lunch, you've got something there, and you want some custard. The idea of actually standing and slowly stirring the powder in the milk until it thickens and then pouring it out. Sadly, I've become the man who sticks a tub into the microwave. Well, the microwave's changed everything. 
Um, but there's something about the thickness of the, the texture of freshly made. Which is down to you as well. That's the point, yeah. isn't it? It's a matter of yeah. choice. So you can yes. have it as thick or as thin as, uh, you know, so you can have almost creme anglaise. Yeah, that's right. Have, it's personalised, mm. you know. Yeah. It's, it's all about the technique. So it's actually quite a sophisticated recipe. Yes. Well, there you are. I see you again. You, your mother, as you say, you suddenly went, I can't do the Indian food because my mother did it so well. Yeah. I mean, there's an extraordinary example there, isn't it? I love her name, I have to say. And, I, and the moment I read your mother's name, uh, Chatterjee, yeah. it immediately made me think that I think Gilbert and Salam would have loved to have known her and <laughs> used her. There is in the, the modern major general, do you know the thing he yeah, has? Yeah, of course. He tries to find a rhyme for strategy. That's right. Yeah, no, Isn't I was it? in a production of Pirates of Penzance at school, actually. <laughs> what did you play? I played one of Major General Stanley's daughters. Ah. And I remember some wag in the, in the, the boy, because we did it with the local boys' school, and some wag in the local boys' school magazine said, because it was me and there was a girl who was of African heritage, and said, oh, <laughs> Major General obviously had a penchant for women from three different continents. <laughs> Charming, yes. <laughs> um, you, you said, um, hang on a minute, I was, I was tripping over Rocky Mountains. Yeah, well, he must have had, I mean, there were loads of us. There were about 20 girls, so. There would have been, you know, they couldn't have all come from one wife. That's certainly true. No. Um, well, obviously, the opportunity to go to the local boys' school and uh, do a musical. Yeah, yes. well. We had the same. It's one of the things that got me into acting is that we mixed with the girls' school when we did a play. So I joined in. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, mm. I mean, it's funny enough, I'm still in touch. The only people I'm in touch with from school are the boys from the boys' school. Right. My brother went to that school. I mean, he wasn't in the same place. He was a few years older. But yeah, the, the best friends I have from that time were all the boys, because we also did debating together. Mm. We were either in Gilbert and Sullivan together, or we did debating together. And we've all kept in touch, and everyone has gone into journalism of some kind, or or broadcasting of some kind. One of them is a film producer. Oh, How interesting. Did it push the idea of history and, and English literature and those sort of things rather than science? No, I mean, I was I was very privileged. I went to a private school and mm. the boys' school up the hill was a private school too. So, you know, everything was on offer. Uh-huh. Um, it's just that I was, I always loved literature and history. So that, that's that's where I went. And did you go on to university to do that? I did English literature at university, yeah. Ah, how yeah. lovely. Where did you go? Do you mind I went me asking? To, I'm to Edmund Hall, Oxford. Edmund Saint Hall. Edmund Hall. Edmund yeah. Hall. Ah. The one that no one's ever heard of. But I have. It's the oldest one there is. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's such a lovely, the, the entrance and the quad. Yeah. Just, it's a beautiful building. I know. No, I'm, a, I'm an honorary fellow there now, which I can't quite believe. Are you really? Yeah. I have, I have dining rights. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yes, I performed Orlando in the gardens at St Edmund Hall. Oh, how lovely. Mm, so you were Oxford yourself? Uh, I was Oxford Polytechnic. Ah. But it gave me the opportunity to go and do acting in every single college, drama society and everything else. I did loads and loads. But that was my first summer. I was going to go home, as everybody did, and somebody said, do you want to be in this garden production? I said, yes, please. And uh, I never went home again. (laughs) I have to say, sadly, I've got to the point now where I have custard so rarely but um, but I do have a son-in-law. He would sit and eat custard until it came out of his ears with nothing else, just custard. I mean, I could still come home and I, I do sometimes buy ready-made custard, but sometimes I do come home and I could just eat custard for dinner. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. <laughs> do a book. You should follow in your mother's footsteps and do a book on custard, various recipes. Yeah, that <laughs> might, might be a short book. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. We're going to put it into a time capsule for you, though. So there, that's number two. Okay. So what's number three? So I feel I'm drawing on things from my childhood in many ways, but I mm. guess that's part of what time capsule is. It's um, my BOAC logbook, which I've lost. So before it became British Airways, um, the airline, 
had a sort of slightly different logo. And because air travel was still considered very glamorous, I and mean, you, you may know this, Michael, you, you, you could, if you were a child flying, they would give you a, a proper little, if it wasn't leather bound, it was leather style, hardback mm. book, like a proper ca- air captain's logbook. And in <laughs> it, you would write, you know, your, your destination and you would write the mileage, like how many miles you were, like you were doing your flying hours. And then they would take it through to the captain in the cockpit and he would sign it. Oh, wow. So, the, and you would, and then you keep a log of all your flights. And I had one of those and I never got beyond the first page because I think I lost it and the airline changed its name. But I just, I was initiated early into that sense of the glamour of air travel. And I have a couple of, well, one of my aunts was a stewardess on Air India. Mm-hmm. My aunt Ruby, who was the most beautiful of all my mother's many sisters, <laughs> and she used to take the bus from Heathrow to come and stay with us when she was on, you know, um, stopovers, um, mm-hmm. flying backwards and forwards through Heathrow. Then one of my cousins as well, Minu, who's now, um, she's stopped now, but she was a, a stewardess on British Airways. And and I just, there's, this is, there's a bit of my family which is just into the glamour of air travel. Mm. And you know, you used to go and see the cockpit. They used to take you into the cockpit as a child. Yes, I, I, I've out. heard about this. I think the only I didn't fly until I was about fifteen. We never went abroad, and when I finally flew, I flew with a great crowd of people, and I only went as far as Rome. I didn't get to see the, the pilot. It was too busy, I should imagine. Yeah, on a short flight. Well, also, I mean, because my family's heritage is in India and Pakistan, we used to travel almost every year to India or Pakistan, and that would be our holiday. So we did some big long distance travel, and then also, I was very lucky. Um, from 1976, my father loved saving up to take us on holiday, and we went to the States for the first time, and that was amazing. Yeah. In the bicentennial year, it was, America was so glamorous and exciting, and all these new ideas and cultural things like comics and yes. Hawaiian culture was something new. Luau's, I'd never heard of what a luau was. <laughs> and you cooked pork in a big pit, Yeah, all this kind of stuff. You spent a while there, didn't you, as part of your career? I, yeah, I, I worked a little bit from 1990. I did the Christmas 95 and then I did 96 to 97. I was the BBC's LA correspondent. So I covered some fun stories and it was I lived in Los Angeles. It was so beautiful. But it was like 28 years ago now. It's mm. a really long time ago. That's extraordinary, um, isn't it? It doesn't sound yeah. that long ago, but it really is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was in an audience of a stand up comedian the other night and he said uh, to this young lad who he's riffing with, he said, how old are you? And the boy said, I'm 20. He went, oh, right. So born after 2000. Uh, the whole audience groaned <laughs> because yeah. we all went, oh, no. That makes you feel old. Yes. I know. What sort of things did you cover then when you were in Los Angeles? What what was oh. the, the big events that happened? Well, the O.J. Simpson civil trial happened. Oh. That was the one where the family did a private prosecution, mm-hmm. essentially, and he lost and they got damages. And it was very moving because um, when the judgment came, they read out, you know, $300 for the cost of the slashed clothing. You know, oh. those things that bring it home to you that it was a domestic violence murder. Mm. And there was the, the whole celebrity circus around it, which I found very strange. That, that was that celebrity culture around reporting criminal trials mm. was just kicking off. It was very strange. Yes. Um, but then there were fun stories too. Madonna had her first baby. And by weird coincidence, the obstetrician delivering it was Heidi Fleiss's dad. And Heidi Fleiss was quite infamous at the time. You know, she was um, was a madam. I mean, she, she sort of mm-hmm. prostituted women to sort of Hollywood stars. But I think, you know, she herself was a, a young woman. I don't know. It's just weird. It was just a strange world. Yeah. Um, I did a lovely story about what's now the American Cinematheque, which is one of the the first great cinemas of the 1920s, it was built in an Egyptian style. It was called the Egyptian. Mm. And when it opened, they had the Douglas Fairbanks Robin Hood 
1922. Yes. And the whole theme of it was changed at the last minute because of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. It was supposed to be Spanish mission style that it became Egyptian. And then, <laughs> anyway, over the decade, it had been divided and turned and modernized and, you know, turned into a multiplex. And American Cinematheque, the equivalent of the BFI, had bought it and were opening it up. And I went and did a whole on location thing as they were essentially re-excavating the original cinema oh, and brilliant. i did a whole thing about you know original hollywood cinema going and how these cinemas a lot of them had been demolished but people like disney with el capitan and american cinema tech with the egyptian were starting to save the ones that were still there and reopen them up and you know cherish cinema heritage yeah so that was a great story yeah as they called them at the time uh, picture palaces yeah they were extraordinary buildings weren't they yeah, but films were seen as disposable, you know, they were thrown away. And so the buildings, to some extent, weren't valued because no. everything was disposable. But, um, I mean, I, LA is fascinating. I haven't been back for about seven or eight years now. I've been on a, I lost it on a holiday, you know, about 2016. Mm. And every time I go, obviously, it changes. But there was something very exciting in the in the mid-90s. And it was the days when, you know, you still had record shops. You used to go to Sunset Boulevard um, and the Sunset Strip on a Saturday night after you'd been to the movies or something. And you'd go around the big Virgin Megastore with the Tower Records to buy <laughs> CDs and albums. Yeah. And that sense of buying real music. And then just seeing celebrities on the street. You know, I saw one of just Charlie's Angels on the escalators and Neiman Marcus in Beverly Hills. It was so thrilling. Oh, it is thrilling. Somebody told me the most extraordinary thing about um, Tom Hanks has a star on the Hollywood yeah. Boulevard. There was a, an actor in the 1920s, I think, who was called Tom Hanks. And so everybody used to go and look at it and go, oh, look, Tom Hanks. And they thought it was the Tom Hanks. But he still had his own one put in there. And you have to pay something like $70,000 to get your star put in the walkway of fame. Really? I've never yeah. heard that. Yeah, you have to pay. So even though there was already one there that everybody thought was Tom Hanks, he still wanted his own. I had no idea about having to pay. Yeah, I know. It's sure a weird. Agency pays. I, I'm sure that's what they do. Yeah. You know, the people who, who sort of go, we need this in order for you to yeah. be at that level. Okay, so um, let's move on to number four. Right, unless you're an Acast Plus subscriber, it's now time for an ad break. We'll be back in the flick of a flock of lamb's tails. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Welcome back. That's the end of the flock flicking. Try saying that after three pints. So let's get back to my time capsule and the rest of the things that Samira Ahmed wants in her time capsule. So this is um, an object which, a teepee. Like, so, you, you know, like, you know, like a little, you know, Native American style canvas tent with the poles. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, I think my brother might have had one or he might not. But we used to make them all the time because you know, my brothers of the generation grew up playing what we used to call cowboys and Indians. Mm. And we used to put blankets over the climbing frame and turn it into a teepee. <laughs> anyway, when I had kids, I managed to find a really beautiful teepee that you could buy online. Mm. And I still have it in my garage. The kids have grown up. They're in their 20s now. <laughs> but part of me wants to just put it up again and go and sit inside it because you could have you could eat in there. It's just my daughter used to play with the toys in there. Mm. It's just something really nice about a teepee. Not, it doesn't have to be huge. Yeah, and they have an open top, don't they? They have the little hole at the top. They have a little hole at the top in theory for smoke to come out. Mm. The main thing is, you know, you you it's a little circular space of your own and, you know, you can close the flap and it can be decorated with nice embroidery. Yes. And they fold up very easily and be put away. Mum and mine's got a lovely canvas bag for it. So I have a teepee, actually, in mm. my garage. And I need an excuse to put it up. But I used to, I used to keep it up permanently in, in the living room. <laughs> Did you sit in it? Yeah, with the kids. So obviously I have to yeah. have a, a child with me. Well, I'll accept that you say it with the kids. But but maybe I should put it up again and I shall go and sit in it and have a cup of tea yeah, and a sit, book. Sit in there and read. Yeah. I mean, there's something really comforting about all tents, in a way, all those enclosed spaces. Because I think you are in something, but you're also very close to nature. I wonder if it's a, a sort of almost a sense, I'm not going to say memories of the womb, but I think possibly memories of being in a pram. Yeah, well, I I, I have very good memory and I can remember being in a cot. Mm. I can remember standing up in the cot in the night and looking out and finding it quite comforting holding onto the bars. I like prams too. Mm. I can remember actually when I got too old to be pushed around in the pusher because my, my younger sister is two years younger and there came a point where it was like, no, she's going in it and you're not even <laughs> have to walk. And I remember being really resentful. Yeah. That's why yeah. they have those things where they have a strap on the side, don't they, for the, for the sort of two and a half year old when the baby takes their place. You can imagine. I mean, I don't remember it myself because actually I would have been five or six by the time my younger brother was born. So I don't think I was as resentful. But I would imagine if you were turfed out of the pram and then told to walk by the side while this newcomer... Oh. Yeah, I was terrible to my sister. She knows. I actually, I, and there's some, I remember, I do remember when she was a baby, and she was a very cute baby, and her lying on the, you know, being laid down on the sofa. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, was, came to stay with us at that time, the early weeks after she was born. Mm. And the dustmen were outside. And I remember saying to my grandmother, Mum, you know, the dustmen are here. You could throw her out in the bins. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? And it seemed completely logical to me. And then another time when she was old enough to walk, she always loved rice just plain boiled rice with a bit of salt and butter, and she, that was her favourite snack. Mm. And she was standing at the top of the stairs with eating a bowl of rice and butter, and I just shoved her down the stairs. And there were steep <laughs> stairs in a, in a townhouse. You know, one's house that's on about three floors. Yeah. Again, this is up in Norwood still. And she remembers. I remember doing it. <laughs> just I can't quite believe I'd done it. And she remembers looking up at me and said I had an evil smile on my face. Wow. Isn't that awful? And I love her dearly now. And I think it, it shows you how instincts are something quite animal in us. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm on the whole, I'm a quite a nice person. But I just obviously had this very primal rivalry with this usurper who had taken my place. Yeah. So I have an elder brother. He's five years older. So I was used to being, you know, the sort of, 
I'm not, I don't have much memory of being the youngest because it only lasted two years, obviously not long <laughs> enough. Um, and then I became a middle child. So, yeah, it's useful to remember that. I do remember that. Mm. Yes. That children don't do things because they're evil. They do things because there's a primitive animalistic instinct in them for survival. <laughs> there's just surviving, survival. yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can always go into the teepee, though, and relax, calm yeah, down. Yeah, you know, I would, I would totally go in the teepee with my sister now. Did it have sort of emblems on the side like they used to have for the Native no, American? No, it's, no, just, it didn't. Just plain? Just, just plain canvas. Well, the one I got is just plain canvas. But, um, yeah, I would. it's one thing I've, I've been trying to make documentaries about the First Nation peoples mm. of the States for so long because I grew up fascinated by them. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the evidence is that originally, thousands of years ago, they walked across a land bridge from Asia right. to North America. And so I kind of think at some level, you know, they are my distant cousins. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. How else do you get there? And also some of my favourite films like um, Flaming Star with Elvis Presley, Audrey Hepburn in The Unforgiven, mm-hmm. two Westerns of which they play people of Native American heritage. Yeah. You know, yeah. Really interesting films. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Westerns, and I think we often underestimate how often Westerns dealt very well with the reality of racism and genocide. And mm-hmm. in the case of both those films I've quoted, they're biracial. You know, that's part of it, is that they've got, right. you know, um, I think, or actually, I think, no, I think Audrey Hepburn's character turns out to have been Comanche and was, was um, stolen or kept after a massacre. You're right, yeah. And raised by a white family. Anyway, it's such a brilliant film. It's an amazing film. People don't realise that it's her that she made a Western no, I'm going to look that up. The Unforgiven. Not Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood film, but The no. Unforgiven. It's 1960, Burt Lancaster and Audie Murphy. Oh. And Lillian Gish, the great silent film star, is in it too. Really? Mm. <laughs> With lines? I hope so. Yes, yes, 1960. She's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yes, she did become that great dame of American films, didn't she? Lillian Gish. Yeah, yeah. So there's all these amazing women, you know, dating back to the early days of cinema, when they were often the bigger names and... Amazing. I mean, if you look at early Joan Crawford, she began her career in the 1920s as a young silent star. Mm. I mean, is it true now, do you think, finally, that actually people recognise the, the pulling power of a female lead in a film? Well, it depends what you mean by people. I don't think executives do. I think male, executives, um, executives that's what I did mean, yes. are still overwhelmingly, even though we know there are significant women in positions of power in Hollywood, there's something about people's default expectations and assumptions. Gina Davis, the, the actress, set up an institute for to study gender in film. Mm. And they do research and they found things like, if you ask audiences how many men and women are in the scene, if you have 30% women in, in a scene, they think there's more women than men. We're so... Um, We've become used, and that's because of sort of social pressures. It's not because it's natural. It's just we're so used to seeing men dominate that when you see women get even close to equal numbers, mm-hmm. it's like there are too many women. So you're so often you'll have one or two women in something. Um, and the whole problem is just recognising our inbuilt biases. So one of Gina Davis's big suggestions was that every film, unless it's required otherwise for the plot should have if it's a crowd scene or a boardroom scene or any kind of general numbers of people it should be 50 50 women right yeah you know, and if you 50 50 male female so that you just get used to the normalized reality of the world which is 50 percent mm-hmm. and that actually something as simple as that would help us reset our parameters so um so it's a long it's a short question but i think that's at that level if we can't even see men and women in numbers equally. No. Is it any wonder that we still, or executives still don't think women can carry a picture? Mm, yes. I do know some people who've actually started that process some time ago where they say that if a role is not defined as a man or a woman, 
you should make sure that you cast it as a woman to sort of break that mold, to change that idea, you know. So all those parts that would have always gone to men, if you look back, doctors, accountants, solicitors, all those roles. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of it is to do with if you you have more women making pictures, writing scripts, that's how you start Mm -hmm. to get things changing right the way through without you having to at the last minute say we'll make it a woman rather than a man but you know I sometimes I have a lot of friends who are actors and sometimes they ring me for a bit of advice before an audition and I had a female friend who was going for a journalist role and it was all you know she's ballsy and bitchy and she's an executive and you know and they have you know it's a part so you play what the part requires but the people are writing female parts in this hackneyed way yes where you're either a you know a ball buster or you're some kind of ultra feminine character Mm. and where's the normality yeah quite well i mean that is the problem at the moment still the problem with politics of course is to a large extent that the women in it are expected to behave like men or even more so like men it's mad and yet what they really need is the idea of people who are quite willing to sit down and listen to other people's ideas and come to a consensus. Well, I think it's to do with who decides how debates are handled and everything is done in a very that old-fashioned way of, you know, shouting and arguing and you're either right or wrong and there's no nuance. Yes. And it puts a lot of, I mean, not just women, it puts a lot of reasonable men off as well, I think. It's a great frustration. But I have huge admiration for so many of the women out there who are in politics today, mm. as well as many of the men who are you know, genuinely trying to make things a better place. But, you know, as we've seen with some of these scandals of MPs struck off as sexually <laughs> harassing and attacking. You know, I mean, it, there's so many of them. I can't keep up. No. I mean, what is it about achieving power? Is it the sort of person who goes for that position, who ends up in that, uh, doing those sort of things? I don't Do you know, know what I it don't is. know. I often wonder what you think, Michael, because, you know, when I was growing up as a child, you know, we all knew and we all warned each other off older men in positions of power, like husbands of teachers and things who mm-hmm. were tried on and, you know, and we never told our parents. It was amazing. It was kids had this n- quiet network to try and protect each other. Yeah. And I kind of assumed that it would be different now because, you know, I raised my children, you know, to challenge immediately and to seek out help and you never accept this, you never keep secrets and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then you find out all this stuff is still going on with these young, I mean, people like Britney Spears, you know, yeah. who she's was, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s. And look at the way the mainstream press was treating her. I think that the problem is that it's very easy to sit around in a group or to read things and talk about things and to say, yes, no, that's the way we should behave. The problem is when you're in a room on your own with a powerful man, that's when it changes. And that's when it becomes almost impossible to go, excuse me, you can't do that. Well, it does make me wonder if, even if we know it's a tiny minority of men, it's a bigger minority of men than we thought. I'm just amazed at how many men are being accused of serial predatory behaviour, of trying it on, which is, it's that's the horror of it. It's like, why would you think this is a nice way to treat anyone? Yes. You know? Yeah. So um, Because that sort of yeah. bullying happens quite often with, uh, with junior men in those situations. Well, absolutely. It's something that happens to a lot of boys and young men that mm. they get preyed on by older men. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know in theory, you know, there have been prominent cases of female teachers being, you know, convicted of, well, I don't know if they call it rape or not, but having sex with, you know, boys who are underage. Yes. And, it, it, you know, it's quite right that they should be, but you don't get the same sense of how frequently it happens. No, or the same sense of outrage as well which is strange. Yeah, I I hope things will be better. Yeah, it's quite. 
I'm always amazed, and I sort of agree with you, I'm afraid, that, that there must be more men than you expect. You always think it's, it's a small minority that, it, you know, it's the bad apple that's spoiling the barrel, but you slightly wonder if, in fact, below the surface of the rather nice-looking apples, there's a whole bunch of them that are going off. Oh, yeah. Well, look at what's emerging in the Metropolitan Police and the police... Yeah. I mean, every day there's a conviction of someone for serious sexual assault, and they were all obviously known to be behaving this way to some extent. I mean, Wayne Cousins was on those weird chats, wasn't he? Yes. And he was um, called the rapist, you know, the man who was girls were murdering Sarah Everard. So I, I think there's a lot. That's why the campaign in London about, you know, reporting your mates, people may joke about it. Mm. But I can see that. Why not try that? No one's tried it before, trying to get men to challenge other men if they see inappropriate behaviour. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely essential. I can't see how, if you leave the whole thing up to women, it's not fair. Why should they be the ones who have to stand up against these things? And you do see it. And I, you know, many times in my career, I've been in situations where... where I've seen people having affairs and or chatting up younger actresses and thinking, actually, you're the lead in this play, and they're not... And it's yeah. clearly using your position. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I think we all need to. It's right to talk about it, though. It's absolutely yeah. right to talk about it because people should be shamed into changing their ways. It's, I don't know what happened to them when they were very young who told them that it was all right. But maybe the whole world tells you that, that as a man, it's your position and your right to do these things. And yeah. it needs to change. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Mm. Yeah, there we are. See, we've gone from custard <laughs> and TVs in between. We've had those. How weird to jump around like this. But there you are, you see. Now, look, if you immediately demonstrate. One of the reasons I was quite nervous about talking to you is you're the celebrity celebrity, aren't you? In as much as you won Mastermind, you're the champion of champions. That's right. I won it twice. So the second time I was playing other people who'd won it. <laughs> so it was really high, high level. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to win the second time. I just thought, I'll give it a good go, which is why I went in um I went in cosplay. I don't normally do cosplay, but um, my topic was Space 1999, the um much loved Jerry and Sylvia Anderson live action. And I borrowed a costume. Um, <laughs> uh, Jerry's son, Jamie, put me in touch with a fan who lent me a costume very sweetly. Fantastic. And um so I thought, well, like, even if I go out yeah. losing, I'll go out with a bit of fun. And as it turned out, I won. Quite <laughs> Brilliant. And I was the only woman. That's what we need in the world. Fantastic. Okay, so we've done we've done four, haven't we? Yeah. Oh my word, we're whizzing through it. Which means really all we have is one left that you want to put in that you want to forget. Okay, so it's a slightly weird one. It's a very large object. Mm-hmm. When I was learning to swim, and I should say I love swimming. I swim every day. I swim two kilometres a day. It's my favourite thing. And I was taught to swim very young. My mother knew it was important. I mean, swam at the local pool at my brother's school, which was St. Joseph's College on Beulah Hill in Upper Norwood. Mm-hmm. And the mass, like, you know what swimming teachers were like in the 70s? They were all men and they were all a bit scary. And they all looked, you know, like, whoa, fitness instructors. And he had this <laughs> long wooden pole. There was a long wooden pole, like a flagpole, but it was a long wooden pole. And they would hold it above you as you were swimming. Because, you know, I, I, it was very early days. I was like three or four. And you're you're trying to get to swim at just a single length for 25 yeah. metres. Mm. And I was doing backstroke. And it was like, if you feel you're drowning, you can clutch the wooden pole and I'll pull you out. It was like having Captain Hook's claw <laughs> hanging over your face yes. all the way. So even though it was there to rescue you, I just felt like an implement of violence very close to me. 
and I didn't feel safe about having it there. No. And and it was everything about what learning to swim and exercise was like in the 70s. There was no joy in it. No. It was somehow made into some kind of punishment experience. But I'm very glad I learned to swim and I got my little badge. My mother would slow onto my swimsuits. So I did learn to swim at a very young age. In yards or um, metres? Well, in metres, actually. Because also I'm really lucky because when I started school in about 1971 or two, mm-hmm. decimalisation had just come in. So everything was really logical metric yes. so i had brand new maths books and it was all you know dividing coinage it's like this isn't easy yeah like how hard can it be <laughs> like 10 new pennies makes a 10p piece well that's not hard and then you realize that for older people it'd been a completely different experience i mean i was talking to my boyfriend who is 11 years older than me and you know about money because he was he was born in 57 yeah. so it was a big change when the new currency came in you had to yeah. learn it all again quite did weird. you i mean you, would you remember I that? Exactly the same 58 i was born so yeah. I, I do remember it clearly yes i remember lots of lessons at school where they they re-taught us how to add up money and and exactly the same thing where you went but it's just 10 and 10 and it's, it's easy it's 100 know, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's hardly maths at all we're not talking tons and acres here this is madness okay i've got to ask you something because i grew up reading those in blighton school books and i was obsessed with the idea of like a crisp 10 shilling note or finding a half a crown. Yeah. And I absorbed the sense of these amounts of money were significant, mm. even though I'd never actually used the currency. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, well, they were significant because... Was a 10 shilling note like getting given a fiver? It was more than that. It was an, an extraordinary amount of money. And they were a lovely brown colour. Yeah. They were smaller than a pound note and they were a lovely brown colour. And in fact, that would be the generous gift you'd get, the 50p, basically. what the, That's what that is, almost. You yeah. Know. And what about half a crown? What's half a crown? Uh, half a crown, well, says larger than a 10p, mm-hmm. and it was two and six. So a crown was five shillings. Ten shillings was yeah. two crowns. So two and six is half a crown. Oh, okay. So it's a bit like a quarter. Yeah, exactly like an American quarter. Like an American quarter. quarter. Yeah, okay. that's right. Thank you. Hmm. That was a lot of money. Rich families, if you look at the Dickensian times, you know, a rich family would put a, a shiny sixpence into the Christmas pudding mm-hmm. with the idea that somebody would be lucky enough to find this. When I was a boy, I, uh, as pocket money, I got sixpence a week. So that's uh, that's 3p. Yeah. It's not a lot, is it? But it, you could buy a lot. But you of, could buy a lot with it. Well, you could. There were not only penny chews, but there were half penny chews and there were farthing chews. Half of a half, quarter. a quarter yeah. of a penny. Yeah, lovely. lovely. I don't know how you got there from swimming, but <laughs> but, but the, the pole we're talking about it's yes. like it's like you know five or six foot. It's like it's like a really big pole, wooden pole with a hook on the end. Absolutely, you're swimming backstroke, and you have this huge thing right in front of your face that you're yeah. you're trying to, in a way, trying to avoid. You don't want to hit it with your hands. As you say, it was a different time. The way they taught things that either you did it. Or you failed. And the expectation was that you were going to fail. Yeah, yeah. It's just that everything was harsh. Mm. Nothing was pretty. Nothing was made fun. Like when the time my children were going for swimming lessons, you know, you'd get little badges with dolphins on them and then you'd progress to being a seal. (laughs) They'd find some way to appeal to the... All children love stickers, don't they? And you did get a badge at the end if you've got... But it was just like... You know, I think you got a badge if you could do 10 metres, 15 metres and 25 metres. Mm-hmm. And that was something. And then I think in theory you could get 100 metres or whatever. Yes. But, uh, you know, I am grateful for learning to swim. But uh, my, my experience of swimming lessons was was quite traumatic, weirdly. Yeah, that does sound traumatic. I think I may have told this story before somewhere in one of these podcasts. But when I was in my last year at junior school, we went swimming. And on the last swimming lesson, we were allowed to swim for a badge. And the option was you could swim the 110 yards 
or the 220 yards. And that was really something. And I said to the teacher, I think I can swim 440. And she said, well, you'll not do it in time. There's not enough time. I said, I'm really fast, I promise. She said, okay. You know, you th- and she clearly was angry with me. So I started to swim this and yeah. I went up and down and I got to the end and I climbed out and I said, I've done it, miss. And she said, no, you still have one length left. I've been counting. You've got one more to go. So I'm afraid you've stopped now, Michael. So we can only give oh. you... Mm. Oh, my God. Now, the injustice of that is not only that she did that, but it's impossible that I had one length left. No, because you would have been at the wrong end of the pool. Yeah. You can hear in my voice how much that Oh, I'm hurts. angry on your behalf. Oh. It does still hurt. We all have those stories when, when adults have done something deliberately unfair and it never, the injustice will never be, you know, I mean, you can try to be a Buddhist and forgive her, but I don't think you should. <laughs> I don't forgive her. No, I don't. She'll burn in a special purgatory for bad <laughs> teachers. <laughs> Quite, indeed. Well, at least I didn't have a great big pole sticking in my face all the way along. How no. terrible. Oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I could get you the badge. Now, maybe you could find it on eBay. <laughs> but unfortunately, I'd have to wear a little pair of red swimming costumes, which nobody wants to see. Oh, God, yeah, the little women's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, I'm well past that age. Well, there you are. That's it. So we've put all the things into your wonderful time capsule. So there's something to eat. There's something to smell. Mm-hmm. There's something to read, my logbook. And then there's something to shelter a under shelter. in terms Absolutely. of the good things. And if you ever fancy going for a swim, nobody's going to bother you with a pole. No. Thank I goodness for that. don't want a pole in my face. Thank yeah. you very much. You've proven absolutely your school motto. What is the school motto? I've forgotten it. Ex humilibus excelsa. So out of small things. Humilibus, humble. humble, from humble beginnings, greatness. Right. Because, you know, the thing about the school was the first lesson was about an apple. So it was about the idea that you could grow an apple tree from an apple seed, I think. The demonstration of the school motto. Well, you've clearly done that. I could still sing you the school song, but you probably don't want to hear that. (laughs) I'd love to hear the school song. I'll give you the opening lines. Okay. From year to year, our onward course we take, strong in the... Something or other. I can't remember any more than that. It's all about confidence and strength. Yes. And lots of references to warfare. Through weal and woe, making new friends, ne'er losing those we love. Uh. Still onward, ever onward, let us go. (laughs) It's a bit martial. It's a bit much, isn't it? Whatever happens to you, no matter who you lose, no matter how difficult life is, keep going, keep going. Bit much. I think it was aiming for a bit of a Jerusalem feel. It was aiming for, you know, give me my spear and, you know, my burning, this, that and the other. Bit much. (laughs) Samira, it's really lovely to meet you. I'm a great admirer of your skills. Oh, thank you, Michael. It was a joy to talk to you and revisit some early memories of things that I love and loathe. Fantastic. And we didn't even talk about the Beatles. No. Well, I can't put them in a time capsule. That would be inhumane. That would be unfair to the rest of the world. I thought nothing living goes in a time capsule, surely. (laughs) No, surely. People have done, but that's a bit mad, isn't it? But thank you for finding that recording. That's all I can say. Oh, well, thanks to John Bloomfield for choosing to share it. But yeah, I'm I'm very happy about that. Amazing. I've I've listened to that. It was fantastic. Thank you. Most downloaded episode ever of Front Row. Is it really? I'm not surprised, actually. No, I'm not surprised. Thank you again for asking me. No, no, my pleasure. Take care. See you. Bye. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Samira Ahmed. 
Thanks for listening. But I'm sure it wasn't a chore listening to the lovely Samira. In fact, if you enjoyed it, then why not subscribe to this podcast so you get every new episode as they're released? I know that sounds a bit like you'll be a probation officer, but it's a rewarding job, I promise. So rewarding that you may want to leave a short review for others who may come across this podcast. And you will certainly have no trouble clicking on five stars as a rating. I hope... My Time Capsule and I are both separately on several social media sites and are more than happy to interact with you there. Ask anything you want, within reason, and feel free to suggest future guests you'd be interested in me talking to, and I'll try and find out if they're interested as much as you are. You can, in the meantime, wild away the time by listening to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. This was a cast-off production, and it was produced for a cast and by John Fenton Stevens, who you can hear chatting with me on my Time Capsule The Debrief, our bonus episode, available to Acast Plus subscribers. Very reasonably priced, I promise. Details in the description of this and other episodes. And there you have it, another episode done and dusted. And for the very few people daft enough to still be listening nor even moving about listening, here is this episode's joke, as close as damn it. I entered a pun competition, and to try to make sure I won, I sent them ten puns. Sadly, no pun intended. Yeah, not that close. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.